Hey, Rajat, so excited to have you as a guest on the International Voice. Before I begin this episode, as always, I want to share a little bit more about Rajat. He graduated with his bachelor's in computer science from Hardcore Butler Technological Institute in India, and then uh, got his MS in computer science from Virginia Tech. So we both share that tradition uh, of hookies. And uh, then he went on to work at Dell EMC for five years before um, diving into the field of product management and uh, getting his MBA from uh, one of the top business schools, uh, the Wharton School of Business. Um, during his time at Wharton, he did a uh, product management internship at Salesforce. And right after graduation, um, he worked as a product leader at Symantec for two years. Then he went on the path of entrepreneurship and incubated Agavi uh, with his co-founder, became the CEO of the startup, and then uh, and and the, and the Agavi in itself became one of the world's largest cloud-based game and app streaming platform, which was later acquired by Google. Uh, since then, he has been head of product at VMware for five years, worked as a vice president of platform, ecosystem, and marketplace at Propo Technologies, and then currently as a head of product and design at Sunrun. Uh, wow, this is an exciting trajectory, Rajat. Um, a lot of a lot of exciting work that you've done in the product domain and out of the product domain. Uh, so this is literally giving me goosebumps right now, and uh, I'm so excited to know about your work. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to add, Rajat? Yeah, quick uh, correction. I was at VMware for a little over a year uh, yeah. as head of product for a new uh, platform product. But other than that, uh, yeah, you know, let's let's dive into it. Amazing, amazing. Um, and so, so let's. I always start off with the fact that how your formative years were uh, before you got into technology. So let's talk about uh, the fact. Um, how was your time at um, in India like when you were doing your bachelor's? And uh, did, how did you get that tech inclination, that computer science inclination? When did that curiosity really start? Yeah. Oh boy, uh, I'm over the hill, so we're gonna have to go all the way back. Uh, so just bear with me. Uh, you know, my, my inclination for tech actually came much earlier on uh, as I was growing up. So I grew up as a forces brat. My father used to fly for the Indian Air Force. So every two years, I'd find myself in a new place. So, so I've pretty much grown up all over India and uh, for a couple of years, even outside of India. And I think I was around 12, 13 years of age when I got my first uh, PC. Uh, if you can call it a PC. So, you know, the configurations of the machine, if I remember correctly, uh, it was a Sinclair Spectrum 128K. 128K meant 128 kilobytes of memory, which was considered to be a whopping amount back then. Uh, I got that and I started learning GW Basic, uh, you know, just a form of basic programming. And, uh, you know, those years, my biggest passion was playing games. I uh, used to have uh, an Atari video game system. And when I got my PC, that was an opportunity for me to play higher fidelity games. And uh, you know, I didn't nearly kind of get the kind of allowance that would allow me to buy all the games that I wanted. So I taught myself how to code just so I could build my own games. Uh, and I think from that point on, you know, I fell in love with technology. So when it, when it was time for me to pick a major in during my undergrad, it was pretty obvious I wanted to do computer science. Uh, so that was pretty much a slam dunk. And you know, then of course I went on to get a bachelor's in computer science and I stuck on with technology ever since. Interesting, I, I've, I've found this a common trend with a lot of computer science majors that uh, gaming has been that point of connection uh, because you're, you're, you're anyways like, 
intrigued by that virtual environment of gaming and just seeing AR and VR right now. It's it's amazing what the what the next decade would entail, right? So it's it's amazing like what kind of programmers and what kind of uh, innovators we would have in the next decade. So it's 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 amazing to hear about that. Uh, what were your aspirations like when, um, like before moving to United States? What was your uh, mindset like, and how did you how did you really uh, think about going to Virginia Tech? Yeah, you know, to look to some degree, you know, at least if you are growing up in India, uh, we are partially sensitive sensitized to Western culture. We appreciate Western culture, and that's been the case for decades. Right, so we grew up watching Hollywood mu uh, movies. You know, we listened to Western music. Uh, life in the U.S. was, uh, you know, not completely alien. Uh, in the sense, we would read about it, watch it on TV, so on and so forth. Plus, uh, you know, like like a lot of Indians, I also had some friends and family who were in the U.S. and we would visit them once every two years when they would uh, come back to India. So, so you know, there was always this little bit of curiosity about the world's largest superpower or at least a tech superpower so there was always that curiosity and uh, you know like me if you were in love with tech there was always a little bit of this uh, curiosity uh, now you know one realization for me Japanese was uh, when I was going through my undergrad most of the books that we use during our curriculum during our undergrad they were authored by people who were either professors in universities here or they were top-notch scientists at like Bell Labs or what have you. Uh, and I remember, you know, as I got close to wrapping up my bachelor's, uh, I remember having this conversation with my dad. And the other thing I used to be into, at least at that time, was lasers. And uh, I was talking to my dad about what I wanted to do next. I really wanted to join the armed forces as a, as a pilot, either Air Force or Navy. But I used to have weak eyesight before I got lazy. So that kind of ruled it out. And I was considering uh, joining the army and I had this conversation with my dad and he said, look, you love technology. And I said, okay, but I'm wrapping up my bachelor's. What should I do? And he said, well, if you really love laser, who better to learn it from than the guy who invented laser. Uh, and you know, that struck a chord in my head. And the idea was I've been reading books authored by all these guys. If I really, really love technology and I want to learn more, why not just go to the U S uh, attend a university there and learn it from these guys themselves. So that is what kind of spurred me into uh, pursuing a master's. I applied during my final years. And, you know, <clears throat> uh, I pretty much followed the strategy that most international students, I believe, would, which is I kind of had these two, three schools that I thought were would be out of my reach, you know, the Stanford and the MITs. Uh, then I had a couple of safety schools and I had like four or five schools in between where I thought, you know, I had a good chance of getting into. And uh, the good thing about Virginia Tech was, uh, you know, it was a top ranked university or one of the top ranked universities, uh, low cost of tuition. And I knew somebody who had gone to Virginia Tech and I'd been in touch with a couple of professors over email. And, you know, we were talking about research projects that we could do after I got here and so on and so forth. So overall, you know, the package seemed good. So when I got an offer from Virginia Tech, I was really excited and, uh, you know, made sense for me to go to Virginia Tech. And I can relate so much via story, Rajat, because I uh, myself wanted to get into India because a lot of my friends wanted to go into India. And uh, since I, as you can see, I'm a four-eyed guy. <laughs> And uh, that was the same scenario why I couldn't really get into army or any of the defense in India. 
And uh, then you also mentioned about uh, Dell, right? So the Dell Labs. And uh, specifically, like you worked at Dell ENC right after your graduation from Virginia Tech. And uh, so how, so since we want to get into like the product management experience, um, your, your more than decade of experience as a product manager and a product leader, uh, how, how did that working as a software engineer is an, in an MNC really helped you out as a product manager? So let's, let's focus on your journey in there. Like, like let's connect the dots here. Yeah. Quick uh, correction. <clears throat> I made a reference to Bell Labs, which, uh, you know, along with the TJ Watson Research Center that is owned by uh, IBM and uh, Xerox Park Research Center used to be considered, it used to be one of the top research centers, uh, which is different from Dell, the company that we know of. Uh, but having said that, you know, when I graduated from Virginia Tech in 99, uh, 1999, <clears throat> there were a couple of things that were super hot. Uh, in the in the tech landscape uh, you know the internet uh, had been around for a couple of years uh, it was starting to get popular and the whole concept of networking as a field was starting to get revolutionized right because now it wasn't just closed networks we were talking about expansive internet type networks right so that was one and cisco was a very very hot company at that time <clears throat> the second was uh, storage infrastructure and EMC was the largest company in the world at that point. Uh, again, super hot. The third thing that was starting to happen was uh, around application servers as related to uh, the internet. And you know, Netscape had just gone IPO back in 1996, I believe. Uh, and uh, Sun Microsystem and Netscape and Microsoft, they, they were the browser wars, right? The wars around the internet. Uh, the two stocks that were the hottest, that were performing the hottest on the market were uh, Cisco and EMC. EMC was number one. Uh, it was stock of the decade, 90s, and Cisco was number two. So I, I'd spent the summer, I'd done my internship in the uh, application server group at Oracle the previous summer. And uh, you know I was interviewing with Sun and Netscape for a full-time uh, role and very exciting and at the time Netscape and Sun were undergoing there was, there was this MNA situation and it wasn't obvious what was going to happen and I distinctly remember when I went in for interviews here in California uh, I actually ended up interviewing although Sun invited me I ended up interviewing both the Netscape and Sun so there was something happening behind the scenes uh, anyway I ended up with a few offers and I ended up taking up the offer with EMC uh, you know, it was hot, uh, a company that was doing very, very well. Uh, and I spent the next uh, five years or so as a development engineer and then a manager out of the Research Triangle Park, North Carolina facility. And uh, so it did a couple of things for me, Japanese. One was it was hardcore computer science. Uh, so it really allowed me to, uh, you know, really hone my skills as an engineer. Uh, that was one. It wasn't just, you know, how well did I know a programming language? Uh, it was really systems level coding. So I really had to get into the kernel, uh, build some things at the systems level. So it really exercised that core knowledge uh, that you learn during your bachelor's and uh, master's in terms of how computer systems and algorithms work. Uh, so that was really good. Uh, you know, the other thing was I graduated in 99 and uh, that was the year when the dot-com bus started to happen and I was on an h1b the company was sponsoring my green card 
and all of a sudden all jobs went away uh, you know sad times because i remember a lot of my batchmates from virginia tech actually had to fly back to india uh, but what that meant for me in terms of uh, a practical outcome was i couldn't really move uh, you know there were no jobs and even the companies that were looking to hire they they couldn't justify hiring uh, h1b candidates so for the next 5 years i stayed put in north carolina at the back of my mind there were two things that i really wanted to explore so one was uh, potentially getting an mba uh, and you know at least growing up in india back during those times uh, the conventional wisdom was if you really want to make it in life uh, you should get an engineering degree and then pair it up with a with an mba uh, so that was one the second was uh, i love tech i was in tech but i wasn't in the silicon valley so i kept hearing about the silicon valley and the startup culture and those are two things i really really wanted to explore uh, but due to practical reasons you know i ended, ended up staying uh, for about 5 years before the handcuffs came off uh, and i think that was that was a good thing because it really helped me understand what engineering was about how do you build really complex products but the one thing that it also ended up doing was strike this curiosity in me because as an engineer even after i grew in the ranks first as a lead and then as a manager i didn't always understand why the company ended up taking uh, decisions or business decisions that it did because from an engineering standpoint you know i would want to push a certain product that i knew for a fact was built the right way in the best possible manner but yet this world class company number one in space dominating the market would make decisions that would make like no sense to me Now, obviously, those decisions were the right decisions because the company was doing well. So, uh, you know, by the time I was leaving uh, EMC, I needed to kind of understand what that was all about and what was I missing. Uh, so, as I started to explore what people do, uh, I really started uh, getting curious about product management because, particularly uh, during the time I uh, climbed the ranks and became a manager, I started interacting uh, with a couple of product managers more closely, and I saw that these are the people who really knew what the customers were talking about, what were their pain points, what is the right product to build, what are the competitive factors in terms of what everybody else was doing in the market, and uh, how do you package a product up. uh how do you brand it how do you package it up how do you bundle up the right features how do you price it and then how do you roll it out with the right marketing messages and uh, sales motion to actually go crack the market uh so i think uh, you know 2004 or so i started uh, handcuffs were coming off i applied to both b schools as well as uh, startups in the silicon valley i ended up getting offers from both and the geek in me won out so i decided to i asked whatton to hold my seat for a year and i took up this role as a product manager at a startup called intranza and i and i'm early 2005 i moved to the valley uh and uh, i spent about a year and a half there it you know by the time i was leaving uh, it was obvious to me this wasn't going to be a google so i decided to move back to the east coast go to philadelphia get my mba but even that year and a half was really interesting in transa was about a 100 150 person company uh my first role as a product manager lots of action we got to bring in a completely new product line uh, with me as a product manager so really learned the foundational ropes of what it means to be a product manager there 
Uh, that was one. The second was, you know, when you're working at a startup, every person counts because there's so much to do. And inevitably, every person ends up wearing multiple hats. So, you know, I was passionate. I was approaching this job as more of an experiment. It was, to me, it was like, let me give this a shot and see if I'm totally in love with this and do I even need an MBA? And if this had worked out, I would have said no to my MBA and never done it in my career, right? So, so it was kind of like this experimental stage for me, lasting a year and a half. And I approached it with a lot of passion. So lots of uh, long hours spent at work. But also, I would just sign up for anything and everything that anybody else couldn't sign up for. Uh, so I ended up, uh, the, the CEO of the company ended up uh, splitting part of my time with the uh, VP of marketing. And I worked with him on a couple of special projects, including uh, building the business plan to raise the next round of funding. So all uh, learning uh, movements for me and something that I wouldn't uh, trade uh, even in hindsight. And then, you know, of course, a year and a half later, I went to uh, went back to Wharton. Interesting. So uh, specifically, like, uh, let's let's take it from uh, two standpoints. And um, also, since you mentioned about the dot-com uh, bubble burst, uh, it's a very, like, the recession scenario is very similar to the one that we're facing right now. So we'll talk about that towards the end. And uh, what your suggestions would be for international students who are facing the same situations, H-1B candidates. We'll get on to that. But... Let's let's talk about the fact that uh, you moving on from software engineering, a manager, and then to product manager, uh, getting that business acumen and uh, customer focused acumen. How what what made you stand out as a candidate uh, with a technical background first of all, as a for the product manager role that you got, and what would be a suggestion for people who are non technical background? I personally do not come from a computer science background, so I do code. But um, but I don't code as much. I don't have that much computer science background to my level, right? So let's let's talk it out from uh, both scenarios. Or what would be your suggestions uh, for both the the technical background people, software engineering roles, and the non-technical background people uh, to get into product management? What 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 would make you a good candidate for that? Yeah. So. Uh... You know, in some ways, you can think of people in two categories. So you've, you've got the librarians and you've got the poets, right? And, uh, and in some ways, and you know, some people in your audience might actually hate me for this analogy, but when, when I think about really skilled, deep engineers, they're like librarians, right? You give them a tough problem, and engineering problems are typically, you know, defined in terms of here are the constraints, here are the laws of nature, and like within these constraints and rules, uh, go make something happen, right? Uh, so very, very data-driven, very, very much rule-bound, all of that stuff. On the other hand, you you have the poets, which are like, you know, there are no rules. I can imagine whatever I want, and let me create something that's a piece of beauty, a piece of art, and all of that. Product managers tend to be, you know, if you think of that as a spectrum, product managers need to be somewhere in between. So I would actually say that super hardcore engineers who actually love kind of just, you know, heads down, uh, being buried in their machine, churning out lines and lines of uh, bugless code and all of that. Uh, they, you've got to kind of introspect and figure out what really gets you going, right? And those candidates typically, I would say, are not ideal for product management because product management at the end of the day is about taking accountability for your product. You've got to do whatever it takes to make your product successful, right? now. 
how does a product become successful? A product becomes successful, you know, either because you're writing good enough code, it's bugless code, it meets the customer's needs, you're churning it out on time, you know, with the frequency desired. Uh, but beyond that, it's also, do you know how to price and package it? Do you know uh, how to position yourself in the market compared to 10 other products that may be going after the same customer in a competitive environment? Uh, does your marketing arm know how to put the right messages uh, or even competitive battle cards vis-a-vis uh, -vis your competitors? Uh, does sales have the right incentives and the training so that when they're in front of a customer trying to sell it, they can really pitch the product well? Uh, is your customer support geared and soft so that when customers call in with problems, they know how to address it? So it's, it's, it's that entire thing, right? Uh, and the box really stops with the product manager. So my point is, look, even beyond just the manufacturing part of the product, which, you know, in the tech domain is all about coding, uh, there's a lot of other elements. And you've got to be curious enough and you've got to be enough of a collaborative person because you've got to interface with all these teams. You don't have direct authority over them, but you've got to get them to play ball with you in a cooperative manner so that overall it's the right outcome for your product. Right? So that's why I say if you think of it as a spectrum between librarians and poets, product managers are somewhere in between. Uh, so that's one, which is introspecting and really figuring out what gets you curious. The second is I would my you know, I would say be curious. If you're generally curious about how things work uh, and you continuously uh, are expanding your horizon, right? You're saying, my job is not just writing this code, but I also want to understand what happens after I've delivered the code on time, right? What are the problems there? How can I play a role in solving that problem? How can I partner with my counterpart in marketing or in pricing or in strategy or in sales? I would say like, if you really want to embark down the path of product management, start doing that. Uh, the third thing I would say is, you know, uh, you can go to school for a lot of skills, right? You can, you can go to school for a bachelor's or a master's in computer science. You can get a degree in finance. You can even get an MBA, right? But there is no good degree for product management. Uh, you can't go to university for product management. It comes from experience and really uh, learning skills or picking up those skills in the context of a job, right? Now, in recent times, you know, some of these boot camps, uh, they've started offering like three months, six month product management certificates, which are good in the sense that they'll tell you what product management is about. They'll uh, expose you to what that's about. But it's not like you can get one of those and then say, oh, I'm qualified. Give me a job. Right. So I think uh, for somebody who is uh, really who really wants to get into product management uh, right out of a technical career or degree. There are a couple of parts. One is there are large companies that you know hire hire by the droves. So these are companies like Amazon, you know, Google's, Facebook's, all of these companies, and they typically have this associate product management program, and they're willing to make bets on you know young smart people starting out their careers, changing their careers, all of that. Uh, you can that's one way to get it, uh, and they'll invest in you for a year. And they'll kind of, at the end of it, you'll have a good idea of what product management is. And from there on, you know, you embark on your journey. The second way is to actually go for a startup, which is uh, what I did. Uh, so the reason there is startups are a little bit more forgiving because everybody wears multiple hats. So if you have an existing skill that is useful to them, like I did, you know, I knew storage and I knew uh, coding or engineering. 
And they were like, okay, makes sense, right? And I wanted to do product management, and they were like, okay, the guy can bring a technical view to a technical product that we want to sell. The rest, we'll see how it goes, right? So that's the second part. The third, frankly, is I could have tried to switch over to product management within EMC. Uh, you know, from basically the reason that I'd already been in a company for a long time, I, I wanted to experience a different uh, landscape. But a lot of product managers will come up through the ranks within the same company. They'll come up from engineering and they'll demonstrate curiosity about other outcomes related to product management and then they'll transition over. So I would say those are the fourth obviously is, you know, you go get an MBA. And when you're getting an MBA, that's a very specific signal that you're looking to do something new. You're looking to switch your fields. And then again, you know, there are a bunch of companies that come to recruit and they're like, got it. You're accomplished. You've done something. You want to change your career. You've demonstrated a passion for it. We'll make a bet on you. Interesting. So you also mentioned that um, while you were working with a startup as a product manager, mm -hmm. you wanted to decide whether you wanted to go for an MBA or <laughs> wanted to be a product manager, right? Uh, so let's let's hop on that. Uh, go back the memory lane and see whether uh, was was your decision going into going for an MBA at Wharton your the best decision to be a product leader. Does um, does somebody who might have gotten an associate product management position, for example, uh, should should he be going uh, for an MBA at a at one of the top colleges? Uh, to be a product leader in a global MNC? Yeah, I don't think it's a necessary condition to get an MBA to uh, do well in any field. Forget about product management. And, you know, there are plenty of examples around of uh, people we all look up to. And when you think about them, you know, they didn't get MBAs. Some of them didn't even get a bachelor's degree, right? So it's definitely not a necessary condition. I think, I think it does definitely help in a couple of ways. So one is, uh, uh, you know, in, in so, so first of all, uh, what I would, uh, at least at least in the US, you know, this is typically the culture, which is you go work for a few years, and then you get an MBA. Uh, you know, back home in India, that's not necessarily the prevailing culture, although it's starting to shift, right? So a lot of people will kind of just get their bachelors and immediately jump into an MBA. And I feel like that is probably not the right way to approach it because you, you know, you go through two years of an MBA program, you read finance, you read organizational culture, you read operations, marketing, the whole thing. And while you can go through the textbooks and the cases and the discussions, you, you can't really intrinsically get the import of, you know, those challenges or really appreciate the context until and unless you've actually been out in the working field. And you've, in a practical setting, you've experienced those challenges yourselves, right? Uh, so that's one thing. And, you know, certainly in the US, the popular trend is you get a few years of work experience and then you get into an MBA. Uh, the, the second is, uh, I think MBA programs are designed to be tough. Uh, you know, they, they change your life. In fact, a lot of people, uh, they hear about this right before they've joined an MBA and they're like, Okay, I get it. It's tough, uh, but even even despite that, more I would say like more than fifty percent of the joining class gets a rude, rude shock within the first semester uh, because they are designed to be very brisk. 
you never have time to do justice to everything. Uh, so in a lot of ways, what they're teaching you is they're teaching you prioritization, right? Which is what you need to do at a leadership level. You're never going to have the time to really do each one of the 10 things on your plate at any given time, all the way, do deep dives and do a meticulous bang up job on it. So a lot of it is about organization and balancing priorities and making decision calls very, very quickly without having the perfect set of circumstances, whether it's time, information, what have you. Uh, that's one. The second is they are designed to the curriculum is often made up of tough problems of tough situations. And these problems, while part of them are academic, at least for courses such as finance, the bulk of the learning is actually in terms of these case analyses and discussions that you do with your professors and your peers. And uh, typically these cases are based on real world situations that happened, you know, 10 years in the past, 15 years in the past, what have you. Uh, and these are the kinds of situations that you run into as you climb up the ranks and become a leader. Uh, and in the business place, the problems that you face are often ambiguous. It's not obvious what the right decision to make is, right? So these cases kind of illustrate, they bring out how ambiguous these problems can be and how even though you might have spent a year of your MBA, you know, learning pretty much everything, it's like, okay, you learned all this stuff, you're a smart person, you made it to a top school, but now can you actually solve a practical problem? So I think by the time you leave an MBA program, it, you know, you and you embark on your uh, practical journey in the workforce, you're attuned to the kinds of circumstances you can get to. Now, what ends up happening, Japnita, is, uh, you know, in an MBA, you end up reading all these topics, marketing, sales, organizational behavior, operations, finance, what have you. And then you pick a field. Somebody might pick banking. And now they're going to spend the next 30, 40 years of their career doing finance. And over a period of time, you start to lose out on what was marketing about? You know, what did I learn about there? How do I apply operational research, right? You start to lose that over a period of time. Uh, and I think uh, that's something to kind of keep in mind. I feel fortunate that I went into the startup land because if you found a company, you're a founder, uh, you have to almost do a practical MBA all over again and you can't ignore any one of these things, right? So you've got to worry about marketing, you've got to worry about sales, you've got to worry about finance, all of those things. Right. And uh, since you mentioned about the, the your, your founding experience of Agavi, we'll definitely touch deep into that because that is so important uh, for any product leader, product manager, getting if he hasn't had that experience, actually seeing what, what it's being a CEO, being a founder of a company. Um, let's, what, what, what do you think, um, since a lot of international students from India specifically would be looking into getting into a top business school like Wharton, what makes you stand out from the Indian geographic? Just because there's a lot of people, and uh, I believe MBA schools require diversity in their um, in their in the class. Uh, so that is why it's it's actually looked at if you're either from India or China, it's going to be much more difficult for you to get into your top business school. So for for example, like a prospective Indian um, applicant for an MBA school. Um, how how would you position yourself to stand out? Yeah, I think uh, you know you you touched upon or you used a couple of uh, words which are very key. 
So at the end of the day, every business school, they're looking for two things. They're trying to see, are you going to fit in to that school? Right? Are you going to fit in to the culture of the school? Are you going to fit in with your peers uh, from your class? Are you going to fit in with your professors and all of that? Right. So, so fit is a big deal and you've got to be able to fit in. But having said that, you need to stand out. Right. So it's a little bit contradictory. But the point is, look, there are going to be thousands and thousands of applicants that apply to these schools. Right. And there are only a limited, they, they operate in a capacity constrained way, which is, uh, how they can't admit everybody. So how do you stand out yet demonstrating that if you were to be admitted to the school, you would still fit in in a positive way, right? Uh, so while you're right that, you know, people or applicants from certain countries in terms of numbers, they are large, that's, that becomes your applicant context, right? So as somebody who is, uh, you know, who came from India, what I needed to see was, what is the pool of candidates? So there may be 10,000 candidates that apply, but you know, 3,000 of them may be Indians. And that's really the pool within which the admissions committee is going to look at me and say, what are the opportunities this guy got versus the other person? And do I, do I stand out within that pool of 3,000 candidates? And yet, will I be able to fit into this class? Right? Uh, so that's largely the framework to look into. I think uh, you demonstrate that by, you know, if you have, I think a couple of things really helped me. One was at some point, I, I remember at the time I was so passionate about wanting to get into a top business school that at some point I stopped trying to game the process, right? And I sat back, I still remember, you know, my wife who was then my girlfriend uh, in the evenings, literally every day, both she and I used to work. We would come back and uh, we would literally spend, you know, a couple of hours, me just randomly rambling on about my life and what mattered to me, what effect it had on me and all of this. And she would sit and she would make notes. And at the end of it, I literally have this little bit of a booklet uh, about my own life and who I was. And I use that kind of as a master repository to dig into and really craft my positioning, which is why what are the core events that shape my thinking? What are the core things that I felt I was afraid of? What are the things that really got me excited? And all my essays came out of that, right? So that's one which is really make it about yourself, not about the school. And I want to get there and I want to game the system. I think if, you, if you're really true to yourself, that passion shows in your essays, right? And the other thing that happens is when you go in for interviews, there is no question that's going to catch you off guard, right? I remember University of Virginia, Darden was one of the schools. And when I went in for my interview, by the time I got out of the interview, uh, I was emotional, but the interviewer had tears in her eyes. Right now, that's a, going a little bit overboard. But the point is, you can really bring that passion out if you really discovered who you are and what matters to you. I think that's one. The second is, you've got to demonstrate accomplishment. Right now, if you feel your academics are not up to snuff, that's okay. You know, go take a couple of courses, even while you're working in local universities and ace them. Right. And typically they're looking for like things that make, they consider very core to the MBA experience. You've got to be analytical. You've got to do well with numbers, all of those things. So things like uh, statistics, uh, you know, a basic finance course, a basic economics course, something of that extent. 
so i think it basically comes down to a combination of the two and then of course third thing is the schools want to know that you're you've taken the time to really understand what the school is about and how it's different from some other school and you've got to be able to kind of demonstrate your understanding of why you're super interested in that school interesting so just um like completely um opening up the game of like what what different universities you're applying to getting to know them better and of course like that is a good exercise that you just mentioned that getting to know yourself better by trying to know your life and what you're passionate about what you've done so far what achievements you have so it's a good exercise to write it down and then trying to uh, trying to compact that in a pack package of essay so that's that's interesting exercise that you took place so definitely that was uh, that was interesting um So you I, were, I would just quickly <laughs> add to that, Japti. You know the last point we, uh, which I mentioned, which is really getting to know the school. <laughs> I think I think that's critical, not just in terms of the schools kind of knowing that you've done your research. I think from a very very uh, uh, selfish point of view, I think I think the applicant needs to do that because if you really think about it, it's a huge investment, right? It's two years. You're going to spend two years of your life. It's opportunity cost because you know if you weren't going to be school, you'd be working. and you know if you're making 150 200000 that's like an opportunity cost of 300 to 400000 plus you're going to end up spending another 200 300000 on your mba that's like quarter of a three quarters of a million dollars right there right so uh, i visited every school i i you know i i incurred the investment to visit every school i was interested in uh, and some of them i did not end up applying to in fact i will also tell you and i carefully watched my experiences with these schools so while i visited uh, harvard uh, i ended up not even applying to harvard because uh, of my interaction with harvard you know that's not to say harvard is a bad school that was just my experience but i only had my own data to go with and i had a less than uh, positive experience with harvard in terms of a class that i was supposed to attend which they literally uh, you know maybe there were good reasons but they literally canceled it the day before i was supposed to fly out and uh, you know what they told me was hey you know sorry we get it but if if you know the professor you can write to the professor and see if he'll admit you and i was like man i just took time off work my my tickets are scheduled my hotel is booked uh, anyway So I so I feel like it's very important for you to know that you can relate with the school because you're going to spend two years of your life there, and it's important for you to know you'll be happy there. Definitely, since it's uh, since as you mentioned, it's a big investment of your time and money, and then that's like how your next of a decade of your two decades of rest of your life would actually be formed via that experience of networking experience and getting to know so many people. So that's that that's definitely interesting. let's you also founded agavi so um, and you spent a lot of time uh, working on that startup what would be what would be your suggestion for budding entrepreneurs like me um like your top three suggestions for when it comes to the whole process of incubating ideas finding the product market fit and the go to market strategy and uh, just just ideation to execution phase so what would be your uh, three top three suggestions or lessons that you learned that Uh, a budding entrepreneur should know and also specifically mentioning it from a standpoint of an international student who is in a foreign country and finding a startup in a foreign country yeah 
So let's start with the last one first, which is I think when you're doing a startup, it doesn't matter uh, whether you're a local or an international student in a foreign country. Uh, frankly, because what, what ends up happening is the, the entire conversation and entire focus is about are you building something exciting? Are you solving, you know, an exciting enough problem, which is a large enough problem? And how do you kind of make that happen? So there's very little room for like, hey, what else is happening? Is this person international, non-international? Yeah. I think the only, the only way that might come into the picture is your visa status, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so if you're on, uh, on OPT, I don't know if it's still called OPT, but you know, you, you've just done your degree, you're on optional practical training, uh, even on an H-1B, you can do a startup, right? So, but but I think the, that's the only, your, your visa situation might kind of play into the picture, but other than that, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the advice I would have is, you know, a couple of things. One is no, okay, first thing, I think you have an opportunity until the time you're about 40 years of age uh, to really take risks. And I would say, the best time to take risk is the first 10 years of you getting out of university. So even before you decide to do a startup, I would say, don't worry. You know, a lot of people think about their career graph as this. And that's not how career graphs go. That's not how people go in their careers. They grow like, you know, they'll kind of do like this for like three, four years. Then there'll be a spurt. And they'll, it's like a stepwise function, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a constant growth curve. And... Uh, Life and uh, life will present you with opportunities that will make for spurts in your career. So that's how you have to think about it. So the first 10 years, I would say, like, you're young, you're out of college, people are willing to make bets on you. That's because, because the way the world looks at you or us is, they say, well, you know, fundamentally smart person, they're in the learning phase of their lives. Let's give them an opportunity to learn. Right? They're also more forgiving about mistakes that you make and they're willing to overlook them. So that gives you an opportunity to actually be immensely curious, right? Do things that you haven't done before. A lot of us say, well, you know, I invested six years of my life in engineering, bachelors and masters. Well, I should just become the best engineer. Sure, you can do that. But if you really want to be an entrepreneur, if you're fundamentally curious, uh, do you know what it takes to sell a product? You know, if, if you were to go look for a salesman job, a sales job at some company, not making a lot of money, I would actually think, you know, that's a really bold decision and it's going to be very useful in your life, right? You really get to understand what does it really take to hustle a customer, really help them understand the value, all of that stuff. So I would say first 10 years of your life, don't be afraid to do things that might be considered outrageous. Uh, that's one. The second is, if you extend that curiosity over to the startup side, be very curious about why things are the way they are today. Be curious about problems that you're already aware of. Uh, and I would say approach it from the, you know, a lot of international students and certainly, certainly if you come, come from backgrounds like uh, India, for example, a lot of our focus is on using startups as a way to acquire fame or money. Uh, and I think that can be very, very disruptive. Uh, and I would say focus on the journey rather than the destination. Uh, really enjoy what you're doing uh, in your startup or whatever idea you're trying to work on. And if you're really passionate about it, the destination will come. 
uh, right? So that's one because re uh, focus on the journey will take you to a, some destination. The other is it's actually bad to focus on the destination because getting to the destination is a function of a lot of variables. Some of those variables you have control over, the others you do not. So if you just simply fix fixated on a destination, it can make you very, very frustrated. Uh, so I think that would be my general advice. Uh, now, you know, you talked about a lot of things such as product market fit and all that, that I believe come later in the stage, depending <laughs> on what you're doing. But that would be my fundamental advice. Interesting. And uh, the, 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 the important thing that you mentioned was trajectory is not always up linearly or exponentially. It's um, you, as an entrepreneur, you must have found yourself not, not making as much money that you made previously. Right. So that's, that's always part, part and parcel of the job of um, mm -hmm. going out for your passion. Right. And, um, yeah. and living out your passion. So, uh, so that's, that's interesting. Um, as a, so, like the interesting aspect was it was Agave ending up getting acquired by Google. What what would be a suggestion for in terms of pitching your idea or your um, or your or your company to these big MNCs, big uh, big companies um, in terms of acquisition? What is the story behind that? Yeah. So so successful acquisitions, uh, you you never have to pitch, right? There are always these companies. If you're working on an important enough problem that matters, if you're working on an important enough problem, it matters to a lot of people, right? And fundamentally, what ends up happening is, look, there are two exit paths uh, or successful exit paths. Either you go have an IPO and you become a large listed company on the stock, stock exchange, or somebody comes around and acquires you, right? Now, you know, we leave aside the IPO part a little bit, but uh, acquisitions typically happen, uh, you know, like psychologists will tell you human beings have like fundamentally six or seven emotions. When it comes to business, there are two fundamental emotions that matter. One is fear and the other is greed. And most of these acquisitions happen because a large company sitting there says, man, I've got to acquire the startup. Either because, you know, they see how that could really, there's a greed factor, which is like, man, I could get my next billion users, right? Uh, or there's a fear factor, which is like, man, these guys, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're nipping away at my toes uh, around a core area of my business. And if I don't acquire them, my business could go bust in like five years, 10 years from today. So that's the fear factor at play. So, so what happens is if you're solving a meaningful enough problem, and you have the proof points, which is, you know, you're in the news, you've got customers, uh, right? All of that. Then all of these companies know they're aware of you. So along the way, they're keeping tabs on you and large companies like Facebook, Google, they have armies of people whose sole job it is to kind of keep tabs on these startups, right? And, uh, you know, they'll, Every once in a while, they'll reach out to you. They'll want to have a conversation with you. And they're really keeping a, their finger on the pulse to see what is happening at the startup. Uh, so that's one thing to know. So you don't really pitch it. People just know. Uh, and uh, I think then it basically comes down to timing, right? If you believe you can continue to grow and solve bigger problems without the help of any of these uh, large companies acquiring you, then you continue to do it. If you believe somebody is willing to offer you a price that's worth it for you to exit, then you exit. So if you think about, you know, let's take the example of Instagram. When Facebook acquired Instagram, it was a nine to 13 person team. It was basically a photos app and uh, zero revenue. 
and Facebook paid $1 billion for them. And you know, you will be like, wait, so there wasn't even core tech. It's not like they fundamentally cracked GPU virtualization or something, right? So it's a photos app, nine to 13 people, zero revenue. Why pay a billion dollars for it? And the reason is all of these large companies, they have core businesses that are strategic to them. So if you think about Facebook, they have a platform, but the three apps that are quote unquote killer apps for them are newsfeed. You know, Facebook cannot exist without newsfeed. If there are fake mm. stories in there, it's like tanks the valuation. So that's one. Right. And they'll do whatever it takes to maintain the sanctity of the newsfeed. Right. That's one. The second is photos. That's how you share and that's how you kind of, you know, socialize with your friends. Photos is a big deal. The third is messaging now. Right. So if you think about Instagram, what started happening was Instagram controlled the user's mind share and people would use Instagram, but then push their photos to Facebook. So Facebook, in a lot of ways, started becoming more the storage layer rather than the mouth of the funnel. So it made sense. Same thing they did with the WhatsApp, right? They went and bought them out. Even to this day, they're not generating any money. They paid $22 billion because it was like, man, this is a greed opportunity for us. Mm -hmm. And getting into the Indian market in itself, as we see our uncles and aunts sharing stories, sharing uh, news, on WhatsApp yeah. and cracking that, like WhatsApp had cracked that business model of actually getting into the lives of Indians and all those developing nations using WhatsApp every day, uh, which Facebook, Facebook and Google and all are really trying. And I can also see like why the geo effect of how Reliance has cracked that model. And now Facebook and Google are investing into Reliance to get that market share of those developing nations. So it's, yeah. it's pretty interesting, pretty interesting seeing your, your perspective from an executive point of view. Um, so, so basically going into, uh, into this batch of now talking about a product manager and a product leader, what really, uh, differentiates that batch of, um, a good product manager and actually a head of product in itself. What, what does it take to become a head of product? Yeah, look, uh, you know, let me, let me leave aside product management as a function just for a sec. Uh, you know, fundamentally there's a question of what does it take to be a leader regardless of function versus you know uh, you being more on the individual contributor level or you know more on the uh, formative years of a career you're, you're kind of working in a, as part of teams look uh, i think i think what leaders are being paid to do is that it's one there's greater accountability right so so leaders are being paid not necessarily because they are the best at their craft, which means, you know, if you're working in finance, that doesn't mean that you, you're really the person who in your entire organization really understand the books the best. Uh, they are also not being paid because they're they are working the longest hours. So it's not about how hard do you work, although all of those things matter. At the end of the day, you're being held accountable. You're like, okay, can you drive the right outcomes for us when the company needs them, right? And oftentimes you are accountable for things that may not always be in your control. But at the end of the day, a CEO knows, needs to hold somebody accountable uh, because he's accountable, he or she is accountable to the board of directors and the company is accountable to the uh, street, right? Your, your, your stock tanks. So people in leadership levels are, there are a few things that uh, people look for. One, can they trust you, right? Are you reliable? Will you do the things you say you will? Uh, 
do you have sound decision making skills right uh, your your information is never going to be perfect can you very quickly sort through the noise and do you have enough of a gut which typically comes through experience and make the right decisions for the company now getting to the absolute right decision might take you 6 months worth of analysis but guess what the company can't wait 6 months if you got to make a decision now is the head of finance willing to make a decision which if it goes well is all great if it doesn't go well are you willing to be held accountable so the ceo can come and you know kind of fire you because you made a bad decision call and jeff bezos actually calls that out very very well you know he talks about these irreversible decisions now he says look the bulk of the times most decisions are not irreversible right they are reversible decisions so you know don't sacrifice business agility i mean do your diligence but only up to the required level don't over obsess on it make a decision move on it if it's a wrong decision learn from it and then you can always undo the decision in the majority of the cases uh i think the other thing is uh, amazon i have a lot of respect for that company and uh, they run their business around the set of leadership principles which you may have heard of there are 14 leadership principles i'm not going to go through each one of them but that really embodies for me what leadership is all about right so similarly having said that let's bring it back to product management uh at the end of the day look you know if you think about how a product manager starts uh, he or she might kind of start working in an assistive capacity with a more senior product manager and typically they'll start working on a feature right a feature which may be one of 10 features in a product uh and they start working on that uh, and they learn what does it take to work with the engineering what does it take to kind of drive that launch that feature uh, train your customers on so forth and as you start going in your career as you get comfortable with that the next step is okay instead of just one feature let me take a product an entire product right so let me just oversee that uh and as you grow finally you start looking at a product area which might comprise of a couple of products now typically the way things work is there's a larger market context right we live in a world uh you know if you think about cloud the larger market context is infrastructure all over the world whatever within that business context within that market context every company might have a business context so microsoft has their own strategy google has their own strategy and that's your business's context that exists as part of that market context and then finally any products that you build as product managers you got to make sure that you can strategically connect the dots between the larger market context your company strategy or the business context and within that context how does your product fit in so there is this element of a long term product vision a product strategy which is how do you get to that vision and then bare bones product tactics day in day out execution right and i think the what distinguishes a new product manager from a seasoned leader is where do you focus and a lot of the leadership uh, product management leadership role ends up focusing on do we have the right product vision and the right strategy a way to make that those things happen over a 3 year period over a 5 year period so on and so forth but not at the cost of the current executional tactics so product leaders got to be able to know what are the strong points within their product portfolio what are the weak points and where it's weak 
they've got to be able to dive down and really get into the weeds and really work collaboratively with the team to write level or write correct the product. Interesting. And so you mentioned a lot of uh, these points in terms of uh, specifically the prioritization in terms of being a product leader and then um, being able to see a product vision for a long period of time and then also not not uh, diving back into the like also making sure the technical aspects are taken care of in that in that sense. So that was amazing. Um, uh, so you've done it all. You've been a, you've been a founder. You've uh, worked in a core technical field. You're a product leader. What's what's next for you now? Uh, I I I don't know, Japneet. Uh, right. So I love product. I love technology. Um, but I also love solving problems in general, even if they are outside of technology. I think the the thing is in today's day and world, and increasingly in the future. No matter what problem it is, even if you don't see it as a core uh, technology area, chances are you're going to use technology to solve it, right? Amazon, really a retailer, but their valuation and their entire business is driven by technology. So the world sees it as a technology company, right? And we're going to see that uh, increasingly. So even at my current role at Sunrun, you know, it's a 5,000 person company, public company, largest solar company in the US. Uh, our mission is to create a planet powered by the sun. And while, you know, the traditional way of thinking about that would be, oh, it's a utilities company, just like any other electricity company. The, the, the core point there is it's going to have to be, uh, in essence, driven by uh, technology based experiences. If you really want to crack, get to the next front frontier of uh, energy. Uh, so look, uh, you know, what's what's next for me? I don't know. I fundamentally think I'm a builder and I'm an entrepreneur. I may go do another startup. Uh, I've done a couple of those at this point. Uh, or I continue building compelling products. That's really what gets me going. Interesting. So uh, it was an amazing session, Rajat. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Before we go and wrap this up, uh, what are your ending notes for the international students, budding entrepreneurs, budding product managers of uh, these next decade of two? What are your ending notes? I would say, look, you've got a long careers ahead of you. Don't overthink it. Try and enjoy every moment. Be passionate. Try and discover your passions and go kill it. And don't take life too seriously. Everything is going to be okay. So just enjoy the journey and, um, yeah. and be part of it and right, enjoy it and uh, like follow your passion. So amazing. Yeah. Uh, that wraps up the session with you, Rajat. And uh, I'll, be, I'll be linking uh, Rajat's LinkedIn uh, in the description box below. The box below. Uh, it was amazing having you. There's so much to discuss. Your journey has been so impactful and so many things have been ha have happened with you in terms of like uh, the product experience and uh, technology experience. We would love to have you again. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, thank you, Rajat. Thanks a lot. I'm really appreciative. Thank you for the opportunity, Japneet. Have a good one.